everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Badass Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Fox. I have time for a couple of pitches today, and that will wrap up the pitches that I currently have in my submission form inbox. I may leave it open for a little bit longer just to see if any more trickle in, but for the most part, the major pitch events are coming to a close for the year after mood pitch next week. Um, So this is something that I'm planning on doing periodically to help writers prepare their pitches. So do keep an eye out for that in the new year again. Okay, so our first pitch comes from Christy. Sarah's past trauma has gutted her confidence at work and with love. When a charming new hire starts, he riles her up in more ways than one. But after his in with the CEO pits her heart against her dream job, She'll need to see her own worth or she'll end up with nothing. And then the hashtag follows. So Christy, you'd also left a note about not having room for hashtags or comps um, and you did provide your comps. So let's see if we can somehow pare this down a little bit and squeeze them in there. When we get to the bones of this pitch, it tells me that Sarah had something happen to her in the past that made her lose her confidence. She struggles in all aspects of life. She's falling for this new guy who comes to work, but it's looking like he's going to steal her thunder. So essentially, if she doesn't gain some confidence real quick, she's not going to get what she wants and she's going to lose her dream job and possibly her heart as well in the process. So let's try something like this. And I'm going to put your comps and hashtags in here too. Hating Game meets Mindy Project. Insecure Sarah's dream job is up for grabs, but the hot new hire she's falling for has an in with the CEO and could steal her thunder. She must take a stand and choose between her heart and her career or she'll end up with neither. And then hashtags I've got at the bottom, which you'll see when I email you your written feedback. So this fits into a tweet with a bit of finagling, like using a heart emoji instead of the word heart and using an ampersand instead of spelling out the word and. And just a quick note about the hashtags in the comps. You were wanting to use both hashtag CR for contemporary romance and hashtag R for romance, but I would just choose one or the other. You can use both and that way you're kind of capturing if an agent or editor is searching just for romance or just for contemporary romance. But you can, if you need the space, I would just choose the one that is most relevant. When you choose romance, you're basically choosing the umbrella category. So that's going to cover all of the rest, like all of the subgenres under romance. And if you're just using contemporary romance, that is going to mean you're going to fall under the radar of agents and editors who are just searching for contemporary romance. So it's it's up to you. It's it's whatever you feel works. Um, if you're short on space, then definitely you can just use one. Um, and about the comps you mentioned, they're the hating game meets the Mindy Project. You can just remove the from both of the titles when you're pitching with comps. And our last pitch is from MK. Nico draws a feeling meets in a jar. Sam is grumpy, so he only collects ugly rocks. Soon his wagon is too heavy to pull. Then a splash of color shows up on the rock pile. Sam learns a creative way to lighten his load in free rocks for sale. So just a super quick picky note about the comps. When we use an X to denote meats, it's easier on the eyes and on the brain if we use a lowercase x because the comps are generally in all caps, which is what they are here, and which is preferred. 
So if the X is also in caps, it makes our brain take an extra second or three to figure out if it's part of the caps or part of like, is it separating the titles or, or whatnot? At least it did for me. Maybe that's just my brain. I don't know. Um, but it just seems to separate it better and easier if you make the X lowercase. Okay. Anyway, um, so this is really, this is a really cute pitch. I always like it when I get to see PB or MG pitches because stories for kids always bring a smile to my face. If you want to condense the first sentence a little bit, you could rearrange it to say, Grumpy Sam collects only ugly rocks. And the reason I'm saying that is because we might need a little bit more details thrown in here. So I'm wondering if you can show us what Sam must figure out instead of showing us what he does, if that makes sense. Like instead of giving away the ending, add a little bit of tension into the pitch by showing us how these rocks and how the appearance of a colorful one affect his grumpiness and what he has to do in order to meet his goal, which seems to be to lighten his load. I'm guessing probably to find happiness too. I don't know why he's grumpy, but I'm assuming by the end that he's probably going to find happiness somehow. So you can say something like, Grumpy Sam only collects ugly rocks, which match his mood, but soon his wagon is too heavy to pull. When a splash of color appears on his rock pile, Sam must learn how to use it to lighten his load. It may even make him happy. And then you've got room for hashtags there, and there's also room left if you have any other details or descriptors that you want to add in. And just make sure whatever hashtags you use are relevant to the pitch event that you're attending so that it can be found. The only other thing that I want to say is that I think free rocks for sale at the end there, and you've got it in caps, I think you are, I think that's the title, I'm guessing. So in a pitch, we don't usually put the title because at this point, the title doesn't matter. The agent or publisher just wants to know what the plot is. That's what's going to hook them. And when you add in extra titles or extra all caps, it kind of makes it a little bit visually confusing. So I would recommend to take out the title of your manuscript and just focus on using the space for the plot, what's happening in the book, what's happening in the story, and only use the all caps for the comps that are at the top. So that takes care of today's pitches. Thank you to Christy and MK for sending yours in. I hope this has been helpful for you and for other writers who are learning how to craft their pitches. And now we'll move on to today's guest. My guest today is an award-winning novelist who earned his master's in creative writing at the City College of New York, where his studies of Latinx magic realist and African-American literatures began. It's also where he started work on his first novel, The Emergent. Since then, Nick Holmberg has lived and worked in his native California, as well as South Korea, Illinois, and Texas. Through it all, he has experimented with content, form, and function on his website and in the novel. He now resides in Des Moines, where he is currently at work on his next project. So welcome, Nick, and thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. So before we get into the questions, can you tell our listeners a little bit um, about The Emergence? So it published in March of this year. Yep. Um, it's, uh, it's a bit of a mashup, really. I would say that there's uh, several different storytelling modes that I've that I employed uh, for the story, I would say it has um, quite a big element of, of psychological mystery, 
there's a heavy dose of coming of age and um, also quite a quite a big big part of the story is a uh, family saga and then of course throw in uh, the first person female narrator um, and uh, really aim to keep you on your toes as the as the reader but the story itself takes place at the dawn of the internet era and 19 year old cat is um, a silicon valley native and she has lost the last of her family um, and it's uh, the last one that she has lost is her lifelong friend Alma. Uh, and then suddenly, almost by um, by mystery, she she somehow ends up in New York City, and she's telling her story, her family's history, really, uh, to a new companion. And a series of strange events um, and injuries slowly release Cat from the shrouds of this family history. Um, some of the history. Uh, is set in the pla in places like um, the shores of Oakland uh, across the bay from San Francisco in 1906 after the earthquake, um, Depression-era farming communities in California's Central Valley, and Cold War Santa Clara Valley, which is now known as Silicon Valley. Um, so through it all, the reader begins to wonder if these stories will save Kat from her past or if they will forever define her future. Yeah, and I just I just wanted to talk about the research that you did in in those era or those decades. So what how how did you go about doing the research behind it? You know, Google is your friend. Yeah. Um, so a lot of a lot of that, and then that's just kind of a starting point for for a lot of it, and then uh, diving deeper where needed. Um, I went to school in San Jose. I didn't grow up there, but I went to school in San Jose or the Silicon Valley uh, in the mid '90s and had a really good frame of reference for what was going on at the time there um, from, you know, of course, from my own perspective, not from the perspective I wrote in, um, but the historical context is, you know, the, the things that I mentioned, the depression and um, the earthquake and the um, the Cold War, it, you know, it is all just part of the, of the culture and the history. It's just something that I picked up along the way. And then when there were details that I needed to confirm, I would, you know, start with Google and go farther as necessary. Where, so the inspiration behind this story, is that, did it kind of spark because you were living there and, and having your own experiences there? Or where did the, the idea come from? Well, I've always wanted to write something that would make people think uh, for days and weeks and maybe even years after they finished reading. And I want people to discuss the characters and the ideas with each other in a, in a meaningful way that, that has some meaning to their own lives. And, you know, people say that the wider you read, the more you expand your empathy. And I wanted to take that giant step beyond by writing to expand my empathy. So at first, uh, you know, I took a female perspective. That was something I did from the very beginning. And then I quickly added um, a semi-closeted queer uh, aspect to Kat's uh, identity. That's the main, the narrator's name. And when I started major rewrites in 2017, I added even more elements to Kat's identity that were very far from my from my own identity. And and uh, in that process, I, I started to become a little bit concerned about uh, appropriation. Um, and as a result. I was really worried that that would uh, lead to an outright rejection of the ideas in the novel. So I considered actually for a while using a pseudonym, but that didn't really ring honest to me. 
given the context of the book, I had to lean into the experiment, um, especially if I wanted the the book to spark meaningful thought and conversation uh, well beyond uh, finishing the final page of the book. Um, How did you go about, like sometimes people use sensitivity readers or like people in your critique group or, or any beta readers or anything like that. Did they kind of help you with that process? Yes, I had a small number of beta readers when I finished my first draft and long ago. <laughs> and um, they were all female character, female uh, beta readers. Uh, my wife has read several iterations of, of the book, so um, she's also been a huge uh, help polishing up certain aspects of, of the story and the narrative voice and, and perspective. And so, yeah, I've, I've used those along the way, but, you know, probably one of those things I, sh- I should have used a little bit more, if I'm honest, it probably would have made the process go a little bit faster, to be, um, to be quite frank. Like to use a sensitivity reader. Yes, oh. yes, definitely. But, but along the way, I, I talked to people, not, I didn't necessarily have them read the book, but I did have a, a summation for the experimentation that I was going about in the book. And you know, hearing from a vast uh, variety of different folks uh, in in my life, they brought this idea, and it was something I was aware of, but it really uh, was brought home by a couple of other readers and, and my first editor, who uh, identifies as queer, and um, a friend of mine from school, for example, um, married somebody that is uh, bisexual and you know, and and also from a different culture completely. And, you know, they they both of them gave me the really good advice to tread carefully. It was really valuable advice and helped inform the voice and some of the details that I actually included in, in the novel itself. Yeah, I think I think that's a good way to, to go about it. I mean, if you're writing from a female perspective and you're male, then to have beta readers who are female that can kind of help fill in anything that that maybe you don't know about or you don't know how to write. I think that's probably the way that a lot of people do it anyways, is to, is to have their beta readers and their trusted people that can really give their opinion and uh, make sure that you're doing it right. So that's good. So writing in second person where the narrator is speaking to you as in another character and also epistolary passages, so like the letters and things like that. What made you decide to include passages like that? Because second person isn't always something that people could pull off. So it's it's great when it's included and, and it's pulled off well. So how did you decide to do, to do that? Well, I think there's the first thing that comes to mind uh, as an explanation is it just has a sense of immediacy to it. Um, it also immediately uh, has a way of drawing the reader in in a way that the you know third person or just strictly first person is quite frankly limited in in its in its capacity or in their capacities so that was you know my idea behind that is that i to a certain degree i, I wanted the the reader to forget that cat was talking to a specific character and maybe even put themselves in that character's position and you know when, when we're dealing with uh, themes of identity. I think that the experiment there is quite an interesting one. Yeah, it does kind of bring you into that other character's shoes and and puts a little bit different of a spin on it than than you would get with with a different perspective. 
So you, res you recently won an award for the novel, the National Indie Excellence Awards for Best New Fiction. So how did that come about and what did you do to celebrate? Well, that's a good question. Um, well, first off, it, it's kind of the nature of the beast uh, when you're use, doing hybrid or self-publishing. Um, there's just a, a whole different level uh, that you have to go to to promote your own work. <laughs> Um, and one way to do that is to look for contests to enter. And that's basically what I did. I found a whole slew of them and entered them. And uh, so far, this is the one that that I um, got the most positive result from. Um, and uh, just a, a more broad strokes, each of them has their own rules um, and um, as to what can be submitted and when. So it has to do with your publication date and, and what the entry dates are. And so that can be a, a little bit frustrating because I came across some others in which their um, due dates were already passed and I was I really wanted to enter them. So it's just a question of putting together. And, and that's probably, I'll just chalk that up to this being my first time through the whole process. So yeah. um, I would definitely, you know, that's part of your uh, infrastructure work before you before you go pub before your pub date is to if that's the route you want to do and you want to enter it in a contest make sure that you have all the dates in a spreadsheet spreadsheets are definitely your friend if you're if you're trying to do self-promotion like this but each of them has their own rules and those can be dealt with in their own way but uh one another a really important thing to remember is that the fees for these uh, contests are there are a couple that I came across that are no fee but there are, but most of them have a pretty small fee. Um, and those fees can range depending on how many different um, genres, I guess you could say, or types of books, because it's not, I don't want to say genre, because sometimes that could be confused with like commercial fiction and things like that, but just types of books. So I entered mine for the one that I want. I entered mine in the um, debut book uh, category. And that's the, the word that I ended up winning. There are other awards that you can enter that um, are a little bit more um, restrictive and you need uh, other people like your publisher to endorse you or to send in the endorsement and that may happen more at the for a mainstream deal not a hybrid or self-publication so they might do that on your behalf but that wasn't the case for me but anyway, when I got the news, um, it was, I believe it was a Monday and, it, you know, typical work day. Um, I was working at home and then noticed this email in my inbox. And I, I knew it was coming at some point, but I wasn't sure when exactly in that week. And well, it's and a good I, way to start a Monday. <laughs> well, let's just put it this way. I was pretty much useless after, <laughs> after I got the news. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, so I am, um, I just took a personal day and and uh, just basked in in um, this this validation that I had received after all these years of hard work and patience and perseverance. Um, so you know, I spent the rest of the day answering emails and texts from from uh, from my friends all over the world. And you know, it, that sounds all dramatic and everything, but I've just traveled a lot. It's not like I know tons of people around the world and I'm super famous or anything like that, but. <laughs> You know, it's really nice to connect with people and and to to hear them their feedback and positive feedback. And you know, later that day, my wife and I went out for dinner, and of course, I used the recognition uh, for throughout the rest of the month, really, 
for a large part of what it's really for, and that is to promote the book on social media. And um, you know, you also get in this case, I you know had the the little emblem that I could. I, I contacted my publisher and said, "Can you start printing books that have this emblem on the front?" So it's it's telling the person who is looking at my book right on the cover that this is a this is an award winner. So maybe you want to pick it up. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, congratulations. That's Thank you. amazing. Thanks. I'm I'm glad that you kind of explained that process because I don't know, like I, I don't know the process myself. And, and I think there are listeners out there who who don't understand how it works. So that was great. So this book took a total of about 19 years to publish. Can you speak about the perseverance? You, you mentioned perseverance and patience. Can you speak about the perseverance that went into it and what made you keep going? Yeah. You know, I, I just, you know, I want to start to answer this one, just, just to be clear that, um, you know, there was, there was a year and a half time period and, a, and another six year time period in those 19 years that the manuscript just sat in the proverbial drawer. So, you know, life happens. And so, you know, I had to support my wife through her graduate program. And, um, you know, I often had to work multiple jobs and I, I'm sure that's not unique by any sense. It's just, this book was the, you know, more and more complex as, as my own experiences and um, knowledge of history grew over that time. So add that to the mix of life in general. And that's, you know, that's kind of what made the process slower. Um, but, you know, to, to answer your question in kind of the short form, I went to school for this. So I'm damn sure going to try to get this thing out there. And the long answer is, you know, I got, I got into grad school with a short story that became a significant part of chapter one. And Kat's voice just kept evolving over the years in, in new and really unexpected ways. And I really wanted to see where, where it could go. Um, the party scene in that first chapter, which is what I just mentioned, was, was part of my application to graduate school in 2002, late 2002. And I finished the first 100 pages by the end of uh, my graduate program in 2004 as part of a creative thesis. And then I finished the first draft in 2010, and it weighed in at 170,000 words, which is way too much, as I learned, uh, you know, in, in very heartbreaking fashion, learned yeah. that that is way too much for a first-time novelist. They're never going to give anybody that much space uh, mm -hmm. unless you know somebody. And at the time I was living out of the country, so I didn't know anybody. So when I got back to it in 2017, I cut the last third of the manuscript and got to work on refining the remainder, which at that point would have been about, a, I would say about 95,000 words after just flat out, just cutting, just completely done. I don't know if I'll ever see the light of day. But anyway, um, when I got back to it in 2017, uh, there was the reason for that was that the, the socio-political landscape in the United States was um, just just made Kat's story and my work feel urgent. And the urgent landscape continued to drive me for the next several years. And quite honestly, we're still living in that urgent landscape here in the United States. Right. But, you know, more to speaking. Um, about, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about this later, I think, is, is just using spare pockets of time 
and I rewrote scenes, added details, and trimmed words up to the last minute, right before it went to print. Um, and, and I'm really thankful for my final editor at the publisher who was just, you know, there were certain policies in place that says you can't do certain kinds of edits past a certain point. And I still found 50 things in my yeah. last go through of the manuscript. And she was she was just great and, and didn't give me any pushback on that at all. Um, I mean, they were they were just phrase changes or vocab vocab word changes that just seemed like, why didn't I think of that the first 50 50 times I went through this and it just came to me. So the final product sat right at 80,000 words, which is um, which is a number I had been shooting for since about 2010 when I finished the first draft and, you know, got that heartbreaking news about the giant manuscript that I had. Yeah. And after doing a little bit more research, that's the number I came up with. It was really, really nice to have that goal to work towards. And one more thing that kept me going was the desire to finish the project so I could get to work on other concepts and ideas that have been percolating for years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, it, like with with any area of life, really, sometimes it, it doesn't go exactly how you plan. Well, nothing ever goes as planned, but sometimes it takes, you know, because you had almost two decades to to learn and and like you said, it, have life experiences and learn more about the history that ended up being in the book. So sometimes sometimes it takes that long and and I think a book will be published at the right time, you know, and you might not know going into it when that's going to be, but it'll happen when it's ready. Yeah, you know, Kathleen, I think that's a really great point. Um because in in all the times that I tried to submit queries and tried to find agents for the book in in previous in its previous earlier iterations you know and looking at, it was you know obviously not great when you receive all those rejections but in hindsight I just was really I'm really grateful that it didn't get published in its earlier forms because it was not ready by any damn sight of the imagination <laughs> so it's funny though I mean we write this book and we're like oh it's this is amazing. I did the thing and it's ready to go and I'm so proud of it. But then you get into, you know, the feedback and and you you look at it and find 50 things that you could have changed and why didn't I think about that then? So it's just it's so funny how it all comes together in the end and sometimes sometimes it takes 19 years, sometimes it takes even longer. I have a book that I've been sitting on for I think just over 25 years now. And I did finish the thing, but it is not ready. <laughs> it's definitely not ready. And I will get to it. It is sort yeah. of sitting in that proverbial drawer as well. But yeah, it it took all of that. When I realized that it, it was something worth writing about, you know, I still had some things to learn before I could put those into the book. So I think it's important and really great when when someone can recognize that and and still stick with it because, you know, perseverance is, I'm always saying like, that's the key to this industry is you, you have to persevere. You have to have patience and you have to be willing to, to look at this thing that you're so proud of and be able to pick it apart and, and add to it and delete when necessary, because you're constantly learning things. You know, even if you've been writing for 50 years, you're still going to be learning things from other people. And, and as the industry changes and as readership changes. So it's important to to keep that in mind as well and and be open. 
Um, so in those 19 years, how has your writing process changed? What sorts of things do you do differently now that you didn't do then? You know, I think the the actual writing itself has is always remained the same. Uh, it's kind of, for me at least, it's recursive in nature. And what I mean by that is I'll sit down and um, on any given day or morning and reread uh, what I wrote or worked on the previous day, do some light edits, and that kind of gets me warmed up. Um, and then and then I can just launch into some new, fairly raw uh, words. And then, you know, I knowing that it's not going to be perfect and that I'm going to come back the next day and probably several more times, if I'm honest, um, and just labor over those um, at a different stage of the writing process, you know, and then rinse and repeat. I mean, that's that's the whole uh, part, the recursive nature of writing is something that I really enjoy and, and I really um, find a rhythm and a routine in that that is that is helpful to to the craft. Again, this is and I know that you probably talked about this with, with many other um, uh, guests on the on the podcast, but you know writing is a, an idiosyncratic thing and everyone has to figure out what works for them. And some of the things that have worked, really well for me consistently over the year is years is just to to have a ritual and it is modified over the years um, and it really depends on on when I could find the time to write and what my circumstances were uh, at any given time so for example like in grad school you know grad school I would spend an entire I would spend entire afternoons at a coffee shop 20 blocks south of, of my school in New York um, it was in between uh, my teaching responsibilities in the morning and early afternoon and when I had to go back to campus to take classes at night and that was just my protected time three four four hours at a time is just something that is hard to find and as life has continued on to, to find three four hour stretches is, is harder to find so I really uh, um, look back at that time quite fondly but you know uh, then I moved to Korea in 2006 um, with the aim of creating more space for writing because I, the teaching jobs that I had there were mostly in the evenings or later on I had jobs that had a job at a university that my teaching load was quite light. So it, it allowed me to live the, the life of the writer that um, I think so many of us want, uh, but you know, Again, life happens, and so I had this opportunity to go to Korea, and I would write uh, during the days in my apartment or even in my classroom before the students would arrive in the late afternoons, and I would teach in the late afternoons and into the evenings, and then again, rinse and repeat. And then life took me to Houston. Uh, my wife was in uh, doing her postdoc there, and uh, the only time I had for writing was on the weekends. I was uh, doing a couple of different jobs, uh, and so I found um, significant, I would say, decent chunks of time, three, four hours at a time is really what I what I prefer. And I would go to the common room in the apartment complex just because the apartment we were living in, there's just not enough space for two people to really live comfortably unless, you know, one of you, unless you're both doing the same thing, whereas, you know, I was doing something creative and, and it just, I needed my, I need my headspace. And then here in Des Moines, when I moved here in 2019, you know, I've started to get up at 5 a.m. And, and in the final stages of working on the book, I was getting up at 4 a.m. to give myself a larger chunk of time to try to meet deadlines, uh, whether those were self-imposed or, or, or otherwise. 
And, you know, I try to carve out half days on Saturday and or, and Sunday sometimes and always starting in the morning. It's just quietest. So. And then uh, the one constant throughout all of this has been caffeine. So I would say that, uh, you know, if if anybody wonders what the real secret to the recipe is, and it's definitely caffeine. Uh, oh, but me. <laughs> But music has always been a part of of the ritual as well, and and I do and I do purposefully use the word ritual um, because it is um, so closely related to uh, a spiritual endeavor to put this um, thing into the world. And again, that's that's my own take on it. You know, not everybody is going to take that that mindset about it, but it certainly has helped me to um, create space and respect the time that I have set aside for this and. As, as crazy as life can be, that that time is for my art. And so that's that's what it's for. And very few things can can impede on that. So the whole music part of it um, has changed over time. And what I've listened to depend has depended on where I am in the pro where I was in the project. And you know, I kind of I wrote I write about that a little bit on my on my blog, which is nickholmberg.com. I'm supposed to do that, right? nickholmbergrights.com yes. <laughs> and um and you can for that specific entry you can look up a writing ritual revisited and then um music is the name of the is the title of that particular entry lots of other stuff related to to the to writing and you know some political stuff but anyway yeah um and you I mean you're mentioning music um oh. and so i'm just wondering because there is music present in this novel is it do you think your love of music it hasn't made it into other novels or, or other projects that you've worked on is that something that that you usually do or is it just in this one this one specifically music did play such a such a profound part in the development of the of the character and and how her life unfolded um i don't have any plans for that in in future works um having said that i'm in the in the middle of one project and i have an outline for a couple of others and so you know details are sparse at this point yeah you never know <laughs> exactly exactly yeah. if if it seems fitting then you know i'll consider it but yeah. like, since i lean so heavily on it in this particular project it might not be a a trope that i wanted to to re-explore so soon you know right right um, and just talking about other projects that you're working on. So, so in in the time in the the two decades that it took to finish the emergent, you were working on some other things. What was it about the emergent that really stuck with you and that made you want to you know to say this is the one that has to publish first? This is my debut. Yeah, there was a time where I I thought I would maybe just hold on to this one and start working on something that um, seemed a little bit more relevant to the social context. But as I mentioned earlier, 2017 and everything beyond that, going back to 2015, but, you know, 2017 is when I had the opportunity to get back to it. So, you know, there was that sense of urgency that I that I talked about a little bit earlier. Over the years, though, I have jotted down ideas. I have a few scenes written for a novel about expat Americans and Canadians in South Korea. But really, like I said, it's the urgency of Kat's story that really kept me focused on that project for, for such a long period of time. And about the publishing process. So when you did decide this is this is 
publishable. This is ready. This is what I want my debut to be. Um, you decided to go with a hybrid publisher so you could bring it out into the world. Can you explain for our listeners what hybrid publishing means and just maybe let us know how that experience went for you? Sure. Hybrid publishing, you put your own money up front and it isn't cheap. <laughs> um, the pu- publisher then, uh, at least this is my experience. And, you know, I think this is true throughout most hybrid um, contracts that you might sign. The publisher then takes care of the design, the printing and the distribution and that, um, you know, so kind of that, yeah, all that that stuff, including getting your your coveted ISBN number, which was which was a very cool day. I must say, I must get a little nerdy here about the whole thing. It was something that I was looking forward to to my my whole life. And I finally had a couple of ISBN numbers. So that was mm-hmm. kind of neat. Um, so they took care of those kinds of things, you know, kind of more technical, technical sides of things. Um, and they're going to take care of distribution. I don't have to worry about anything um, for the full three years of my contract with them, which starts, it actually starts on the day of publication, not the day that I signed my contract, which is kind of neat too. But if you self-publish, um, much of your book production is left largely up to you. That's my understanding of it. And this is, I'm just including that detail as, as, as a way of contrast. For hybrid deals in comparison to um, more traditional deals, royalty rates for a hybrid are much higher um, than a traditional deal, uh, but you do not have the marketing team that you might have uh, with a major publisher. But I met the publisher through uh, a crowdfunding campaign because I wanted to raise some money to pay for a developmental editor and a copy editor, but th- those two are, are quite expensive. And I, because I recognized that, okay, I have this manuscript, but it's still got some, some rawness to it. And I need, I need some, I need somebody other than my extremely intelligent, but very biased wife to, to look yeah. at, at the, at the manuscript. And um, so I ran a crowdfunding campaign in 2017 on a platform called Publishizer. It's kind of a, it always sounds a little weird to me to say Publishizer. And it really, it really was, it really was kind of cool um, because uh, you can get a sense of all the people that I had to reach out to and all the people that responded positively and then made varying contributions anywhere from $9 to $200. Um, and, you know, it's, it added up out after a month and I had enough uh, to really get things started. But the other benefit of that, not just raising money, is that you can then, in this platform, um, publishers look at these pitches and oh, then yeah. they can respond to you directly and say, We're interested. Let's set up a conversation. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. So that, that publisher, was uh, named Kohler. And uh, I, at first, wasn't sure. I was like, this book's really goddamn good. So we're just, we're going to turn down that that offer because I don't want to pay. I don't want to pay all that money. Yeah. Uh, so I kept hunting for a traditional deal. Um, and that just didn't pan out. And I was just, I just needed to to move it along. So I, I reapproached them. Um and they uh, took a look at my materials again. It was maybe a year and a half, two years later, adding to the long timeline of the story, uh, the story of the story. And they accepted it and we signed a deal. 
having no other experience to compare it with, I would say working with a hybrid publisher has been kind of a mixed bag. For example, the publisher's designer came up with uh, four possible book covers for me. And this is another thing that I wrote about on my blog is, is that I gave them a whole um, bunch of different book covers that I liked and they kind of worked off of that. So that was kind of neat. And then the next part of it was, you know, they had those four reduced the um, possibilities down to the top two that, that we kind of liked in our small group. And then they used their website to um, do a cover poll. And that was a really great way to get the, you know, to kind of promote long before publication, but to, to promote. And they ultimately chose the book cover that I wanted. And they chose, the publisher chose the book cover um, that the that the folks who who con contributed or voted in the poll uh and so that that was a really good result and and the cover is just it, i couldn't have asked for anything more it's just such a great cover um really eye-catching and it just uses the colors um really well i'm just happy with the work but I, I couldn't have done that myself so i mean that's one of the one of the great things about working in this particular situation you don't get that kind of uh freedom i don't think in a in a in a more traditional deal. I mean, they are going to have somebody come in that may or may not read the whole book. Yeah. And, um, you know, they'll, they'll read a synopsis of it and say, Oh, this, this book sounds like it, it gets this cover, but mm -hmm. you know, I had, I had a lot more agency. So that was kind of cool. And then, as I mentioned earlier, my final editor was really kind of great. Um, I don't think that I would have give, been given that much latitude in the, in the absolute last days of, of, of editing to make such changes. The other side to it is I've had to take time away from my creative pursuits to scrape together money over over the years in different ways, working different jobs. I <laughs> I have donated plasma uh, over over the years to to save money. Uh, currently, I, I started going back because uh, well, the money is really quite good. It's really easy, mm -hmm. uh, but I, I started doing that so I could fund a little trip down to Houston to do some small book book events. And I might do that um, middle of next year. And, um, you know, another thing is I, you know, I used, I used tax returns in order to pay the uh, required upfront costs to the publisher because I had spent all my previous money on my editors. So it's just like, I feel at times that you're kind of in the, the machinations of this publishing world that I just don't really understand and it's hard not to to speak of it as uh, you know in a little bit of a jaded way but you know in the end I got my book out there and I wouldn't trade it for anything right and a couple more couple more points of I had to do my own work like work and getting my book on library shelves which I'm really um, happy to get my book but somebody's got to purchase them so you know I've got my book in the public library up at I uh, up in Ames, which is where I work at Iowa State, um, and it's going to be on the shelves of the of the university library there. But my dad had to go into the public library of my hometown and say, "Hey, I'm donating this book. Why don't you put it on the shelves?" And you know that process takes a while because they have limited shelf space, and so you don't always get uh, librarians to purchase a book of some unknown author. So yeah, I've had to do a lot of that work up front, and I think that's um, it does take away from from my creative pursuits and, and working on that next project. But I think that that authors of any type of publication deal could probably say that's the same experience that they've had, maybe to varying degrees. But they've had to do their own 
promotional stuff in order yeah. to get the word out because there's a lot of competition out there. You have to work your ass off to to yeah. to get known. Yeah, absolutely. And even with the traditional publishers, like there's varying degrees of of what they include in your contract, like how much they're going to to do in the marketing perspective, but you still have to, I mean, it's your book. You, you want to be successful. You also want the publisher to see that you're aiming to be successful because then, you know, maybe they'll buy your next book, but you, you, you always have to. And even if you don't have to, you still should, like, even if you have the mar- the marketing team behind you, I think it's never going to be a bad thing if you also do things on top of that on your own. Um, and I think there's th- this big idea where, you know, authors think that, oh, if I can get published with a big five, I won't have to do any of that. But that's not true. <laughs> yeah, it, it's yeah, I agree with you 100%. Um, yeah. And there is a part of me, I mean, I did come across as a little jaded about that whole part of it. But I just did a book event this past weekend um, here in Des Moines. And it was a lot of fun to get out there and, and meet other writers in the community. Yeah. Um, and, and that's actually pretty important, too, because I mean, those people are pursuing the same dream, getting published or being noticed and having their ideas considered by a wider audience. So yeah, yeah, it's always a good thing. I'm always encouraging people to take advantage of those two because I think many people would say that writing is very solitary because you do it yourself. But there's a wide, wide variety of other writers out there who can help you cheerlead for you, encourage you, support you, um, listen to you complain about when you get all those rejections. And I think it really, it helps to boost your spirits when you need it. And also to, to keep you going when you're feeling, you know, like when you're in the middle of your, your project and you don't know which way to go or something's not feeling right, you know, it's always good to bounce ideas off. So the more that you can get out there and, and connect with other creative minds, the better, I think. I agree. And that's probably something I will take to heart my next time through this, this process for sure. Yeah. Um, so for our last question today, what would your advice be for writers who are struggling to find their footing with their projects? And it's taking a lot longer than, than what they anticipated. Marry your editor. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, really. Um, write, write your first draft for yourself. That's my first piece of advice. Um, and I'm kind of paraphrasing Sean Connery in uh, the movie Finding Forrester it, when I say that. Um, but it, but it, it really is the truth uh, to be, you really need to be receptive to, and I, I heard you talking about this in your previous episode, just talking about the joy of, of writing and, and being receptive to that joy in its early stages. Because in my experience, the later stages, when you want to start to think about, when you have to start thinking about your obligations to your audience, um, you can definitely lose some sleep. But I suppose that really depends on the kind of book that you're you're writing. But let me just say that, that with all the sleep that I lost, and I and I lost a lot over the last couple of decades um, because of the nature of the book. But I wouldn't trade getting my book published to get any of those uh, hours of sleep back. The other little pieces of advice I would say is use light outlining to keep yourself anchored. Uh, It doesn't have to be extremely detailed, at least in my experience, but I did no outlining at all at any stage. And quite honestly, that's probably added to the the length of time it took to get things done here. But, you know, I was still 
just getting used to the voice that was emerging from from the process of writing this book. But um, also just stay in touch with your your work, uh, even if you only do an hour or so a day, even if you're just doing light edits, make sure you sit down, create that routine. Otherwise, uh, it can take some time to get back into the voice of your character as well as the plot and and, and details that you're that you're working with. Um, the next one I'd have to say is is um, if what you're writing is social uh, and political uh, in its themes, make sure you keep on top of current news. Uh, you never know when a current event will will help you draw uh, parallels in a story, even if that story takes place in the past or you know in some science fiction cases in the future. And then develop a small group. This is this is one thing that probably prolonged my process as well is that I would recommend developing a small group of beta readers that can commit to giving you honest, but not necessarily technical feedback. How does it sit with them on an emotional level? I think that is probably the most important part to what beta readers can bring to your to your process. Another reason the emergent took so long is that I really didn't have that consistent group. And if I had, then they would have looked at my page and been able to give me continual feedback. But um, much of the consistent feedback over the past 13 years, at least the 13 years, is, came from my wife, as I mentioned before. Um, and in that time, she read most of, most or all of my manuscript iterations, uh, probably at least five times all the way through. And uh, not to mention all the scenes that I rewrote. And the, you know, that's one person, and her insight was amazing and had such a positive influence on my book. And I just think, well, the next time through, if I have a few more perspectives on a consistent basis, it's really going to, I don't really want to speed up the process, but it will speed up the process and it will make my narrative so much more rich. Yeah. Um, I think too, like if you have a few of those consistent voices and, and, you know, who are looking at all of the pages you're going to start to see because our favorite word in the creative <laughs> in the publishing industry is subjective um and so you never know what one person is going to like and what the next isn't but with getting your feedback from more than one person you're going to start to see patterns and once there's a pattern emerging then you can start you know that can help you decide what feedback resonates with you and and what is necessary to take to heart versus you know, maybe it's just one person's opinion where something isn't working, but everybody else is saying it is, or you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to have kind of a well-rounded group of people who are giving you that that feedback. Um, and just getting back to a couple of things you're saying, the character voice, getting, you know, if you if you spend too much time away from it and and you don't consistently visit your story, even if you're still working things out, you do kind of lose that that voice. And you have to kind of, you have to stay with it, at least in some small way. You don't want to lose that character voice. And outlining. I, I never used to outline either. And I, I do now. And I outline, it's so detailed. And, and I find that, I mean, for me, like you said before, it's not going to work for everybody. Everybody has their own their own path that they like to take. For me, though, I find that the outlining helps me keep focus and helps me stay on track but it also it also helps you know anytime i look at the outline i get that spark of excitement to write it again so i think that is really helpful as well 
Yeah, I agree. My next bigger project definitely uh, already has an outline. And then I'm thinking of doing a semi-historical fiction novel based on one of the characters in The Emergent, actually, um, the grandfather. And so I am going to outline that one. But I'm currently working on a novella, which I, again, find myself without an outline, but it's a shorter piece. So I feel a little bit more secure in it. And I do have, I mean, the outlines in my head. Yeah. (laughs) You know, something that, something that our elementary school teachers would say, uh, no, that's not an outline. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, some people just outline in their head and that's just where it stays. Me though. I mean, I I have to write things down. If I don't write it down, then I will forget. Um, well, Nick, thank you so much for taking the time out today to to talk with me about all of this. I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, same. Thank you very much, Kathleen, for having me. It's been great. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Nick, and I hope it helps you in some way on your writing journey. I am currently up to my eyeballs in mood pitch preparation. The activities begin today, so if you're listening to this and you're planning to query your completed polished manuscript, definitely check us out at Mood Pitchers on Twitter and our website at moodpitch.org. There are six days of awesome activities, including a webinar tomorrow, Saturday, October 29th at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with literary agent Emmy Nordstrom Higdon, who will be critiquing a whole bunch of queries live and then answering some Ask Agent questions from the attendees. There is still time to register, so go do that real quick by visiting the registration page on our website under the event guidelines tab. And if you're living outside of an area that is suitable to watch at 2 p.m. Eastern time, like if you live on the other side of the world and you'll be sleeping, or if you have to work and you just can't make it, you can still register. Registration is free and the recording will be sent out to anyone who registers so you can definitely watch that later so have a wonderful weekend everyone happy halloween may it be super extra spooky and i will be back on tuesday with another fabulous episode until then keep being badass